As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. Some conservative politicians nowadays, they say such things as like there's men and women and that's all there is. And uh, I think things are not so simple for us and things are not so simple for our closest relatives. And so you have all that variability going on what we call nowadays in society, we call it gender diversity. So you find all that gender diversity also in the other primates. Uh, and it's unfortunate that our current societies are intolerant of diversity. So, so we, we like to put people in pigeonholes, like you are male, you are female, you are homosexual, you are heterosexual. We like these pigeonholes, but not everything fits and, and not everybody fits. And, and we are intolerant of the ones who don't fit in these pigeonholes. That's primatologist Franz de Waal. We first met almost 20 years ago when I visited the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. We were there to film a story for the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers. We spent a day watching the chimpanzee colony while Franz explained the chimp politics behind what we were seeing. One of the chimps I saw that day was a female named Donna, and it turns out she plays an important role in Franz's new book. The book is called Different gender through the eyes of a primatologist. This is great to see you again, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. I think it really makes a contribution to the debate about gender, and the title gets right into a different gender through the eyes of a primatologist. What's the difference between sex and gender in your eyes? Yeah, you know, the original difference is that sex relates to biology, such as the genitals, the chromosomes, the hormones. And sex is mostly binary, not exclusively, but 98% male-female. Uh, and gender is a word that was introduced in the 50s to, um, to indicate that, you know, the behavior, the behavior that we use to express our uh, gender is quite different between men and women, but that's largely cultural product. So, so some of that is biology, and that's what I'm arguing, of course, in my book. But a lot of it is is culture, is, is culturally different, and is through education and norms that we have. And so gender is a much more flexible concept than sex. Unfortunately, in the English language, we have started to conflate the two. So now people use the word gender sometimes for biological sex. So they will ask, what is the gender of your dog? 
And, you know, that's not a good question because my dog doesn't have a lot of cultural expression, maybe, of uh, the sex roles. But but people have started to conflate these two. Even in scientific studies, people will talk about the gender of frogs, you know, imagine that. So So gender is now overused, in my opinion, and that distinction has gotten lost a little bit which confuses the discussion. But originally, it, it was quite a clear distinction, I think. So what about this, the last part of the subtitle, gender through, through the eyes of a primatologist? What do you feel we can learn about us from other primates? Well, there's two things. It's one is that gender is, as a concept is maybe also applicable to, let's say, chimpanzees and bonobos. Because uh, a chimp is adult when he's 16, so he has a very slow development and he learns a lot of things in his life, including uh, sex-typical behavior. So, so it's not like um, in, in, the, in the apes we see just biology and in humans we see just culture. It is much more complex. In humans we see also biology and the apes we see also culture, a, a transmission of knowledge and habits and expressions and so on so that's one thing and the, and the other element but we can learn i think and that's what i try to introduce is that we need to bring biology back into the discussion of gender some people have tried to separate the two and, and have said well gender is purely cultural is purely uh, expectations and stereotypes and stuff like that and i think that's an enormous simplification because gender and sex remain connected and people who try to separate them i think they are misguided when I said I thought you made a contribution to the debate that rages about gender, I was thinking of how at both ends of the spectrum of that debate, you have something to offer. For instance, people who say male chimps dominate, therefore we're their cousins and we can expect male humans to dominate because they're going to get that same impulse. I have a lot of trouble with that view First of all, um, because male dominance is not universal in the animal kingdom, and our two closest relatives are a good example in the sense that male chimpanzees are dominant over females, but male bonobos, which are equally close to us, the bonobos, uh, the females are dominant. So, so already in our closest relative, the picture is not so, not so clear. But in addition... Physical dominance is just a small part of the picture. Yes, male chimpanzees are physically dominant, but in my previous book, I described Mama, the alpha female of a chimpanzee colony, who was alpha female for 40 years. She had an enormous amount of power. So, so yes, physically she, she did not dominate the males, but that doesn't mean that she did not decide a lot of things, including the status of males in, in the sense that you could not become alpha male in that colony without the support of mama, the, the female chimp. Mm. If he doesn't have her support, uh, that's a very problematic position to be in for him because the females are usually a large group who are very cohesive. And so um, the bonobos, of course, are special in that you have collective female dominance. I would say it's basically a Me Too movement Mm. Uh, in the sense that the females have decided to put a stop to, f to male aggression. They, they, they object to male harassment. There's certainly no rapes possible in a bonobo society because the females would never tolerate something like that. So it's a very different society from the chimp. And that makes the comparison so interesting. Uh, there, there is, of course, a tendency in the, among the anthropologists, they don't like the bonobo. So, so the bonobo 
they try to push aside and they, they write in their books things like the bonobo is a very strange primate and then they dismiss them. But they are genetically exactly equally close to us as chimpanzees. They have a very different society. They are much more peaceful. They're much more erotic, which also is a problem for some people. They're very sexy primates. And uh, so, yeah, people try to push them out of the picture because they have a sort of picture of the human evolution that is based on violence and male dominance. But I think um, they're exactly equally relevant, chimpanzees and bonobos, and we should try to construct an evolutionary picture that includes both of them. And you paint a picture of the alpha male, even in the chimp population. Being alpha doesn't necessarily make you a bully. No, no. There are, there are bully alphas and there yep. are socialized alphas or alphas that share more and are, break up fights and don't cause as much violence. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the, the business literature has settled on a picture of the alpha male that is a bully. So, so if you read that literature, it is uh, make sure that you are the boss, make sure that everyone knows you're the boss, that you have the biggest office, you beat everyone over the head, you, you, you get the women, you know, that's the story in the business books. And, and even though the popularity of the term alpha male comes partly from my work, because it started after I wrote chimpanzee politics and talked a lot about alpha males, uh, they have reduced it to some sort of um, a dictator. Uh, most alpha males that I know, th there are exceptions, uh, who are bullies, <laughs> they do exist. But most alpha males that I know um, uh, have been very protective of the underdog, for example. They defend juveniles against adults. They uh, defend females against males. They uh, break up fights. They are very empathic towards uh, victims of fights. Uh, and, and so they can become extremely popular. They, they, by the end of their life, they may be the most popular male in the group uh, because they were such great leaders. Uh, and so um, the most alpha males that I know, they are very different from bullies. They are really individuals who keep the group together. Is there a difference between the way males and females learn their roles in society? Yeah, I think uh, we have evidence now of, of what I call self-socialization. And what that means, because people always think of socialization as we parents, we socialize our children and we tell them to act like a boy and to act like a girl and so on. I think there's a lot more self-socialization going on with boys and girls looking up at certain models girls usually at their mother, boys at their father. Uh, and in the primate groups, uh, since fatherhood is less well-defined, young males look up at um, adult males and emulate their behavior. And since they have such a slow development, they learn a lot of things in their life. And so, yes, um, I, I think the, the young females tend to, to emulate their moms and, and the young males, uh, adult males, and, and we know in human studies, of course, also that there's a lot of self-socialization. And, and this idea has always transferred to trans individuals. So a, a trans a girl, for example, um, who's, who's born biologically as a boy and develops into a trans girl, she emulates uh, individuals of the opposite sex, so adult females. 
And and so the, that idea has been expanded to trans individuals now, is that they pick for self-socialization a, a different target than uh, individuals who are not uh, trans. So I think self-socialization is underestimated. And I think in the primates, very highly, uh, it's highly likely that they have the same sort of thing going on. So, for example, in in captive settings, I've often seen that if uh, if an adult male displays, he he dis- puts all his hair up and he he, he makes a, a whole demonstration of his strength to the group. Um, it's, it's usually not an aggressive thing. It's more like a demonstration of an intimidation. If he does that uh, for, let's say, 10 minutes, um, everyone is watching and the mothers keep their kids very close because it's a dangerous moment. But once he's done, uh, they release their children. And it's very often uh, young males, one or two or three years old, really baby chimpanzees, who then run to the same place where the male had done his display <laughs> and and bang the same door or bang the same tree or uh, shake <laughs> the same tree. And so they do the same thing as that their male was doing. And it's young males who do that with all their hair on end and they're, and they're little babies at that point. But they have been watching very closely what that male was doing. Yeah. So what are some of the differences that you observe in primates? One, I think, is that young females are very interested in infants, or something that something that they can substitute for an an infant, almost like mm-hmm. a doll. Yeah, so that's a, that's a major difference. Is that the young females are fascinated by infants, and as soon as a mother comes in with a newborn baby, she's going to be surrounded by young females who all want to put their hands on it. And uh, if these females are older and a bit more experienced, they may become babysitters for the for the for that uh, mother. They also, in the wild, uh, young chimp females, for example, they collect uh, rocks or wooden logs and hold them like an infant on their back, on their belly, sometimes against a nipple, sometimes they build a nest for it. So they, they create their own dolls. And if you look at human studies, uh, girls are uh, typically more interested in infants and dolls than boys are. So that's a very early difference, and it has to do with the enormous amount of knowledge that females need in order to become competent mothers. So it's not easy to be a mother. It's, it's, we often speak of the mother instinct, but maternal behavior needs to be learned. And I think that's why young females are very interested in infants. It's very functional for them to be. And in the meantime, the young males, they are interested in play wrestling, uh, rough housing, play wrestling, mock fighting. We usually call it rough and tumble play. And rough and tumble play in all the primates, you know, both monkeys and apes, is more typical of young males. In humans, human studies, it's always more typical of boys than of girls. So that's a typical male behavior. And, and that's also a preparation for adulthood. Uh, it's just partly a preparation to learn fighting skills uh, to, that you can use as an adult, but also to control your strengths. So, so I'm a bit upset by the current tendency that I see at schools where they forbid children to touch each other and to do this kind of wrestling because I think for young males it's awfully important to to um, learn how to control their strengths. Oh, so it's not only learning to use your strength but to control it. To control it because if you look at an adult male gorilla, look at how strongly built he is. With his fist, if he presses a little bit on a baby gorilla, it's dead. So And he plays with baby gorillas, and they survive. And that means that he has an enormous control over his, his physical strengths. 
Uh, and and I think in human human men are far stronger than women, are stronger than children. Human men also need to learn how to control their strengths and to know the limits of what they can do with others and uh, to to keep it fun and to keep it as a healthy relationship. And so I think um, wrestling by boys and by young male primates is extremely important for all that control over your physical capacities. So did you benefit from that having? Only brothers in a large family, no, no sisters, <laughs> well, right? Well, we did a lot of wrestling, I'm sure. We did a lot of uh, football playing, uh, you know, what we call football, what you call soccer. So um, uh, we did all of that. Uh, I, I think my curiosity about gender came partly from having five brothers and, and being in a male family. And I was at a boys' school also, so mm. uh, I didn't see a lot of girls when I was young, no. So how did you get from that? to joining the feminist group, Men, Women, Society. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the transition for you? I, I was interested, I think, in gender in general. And um, I, I do feel that there is gender inequality in society, and I don't agree with it. And, and it's in favor of men, clearly. That's very obvious. And so I joined that uh, society, uh, it had a good idea. The idea was that gender roles would need to be changed by both genders, not just by women. Uh, men needed to be involved in that. Uh, but that movement over the over the years became hostile to men. Uh, they blamed everything on the man. And, and at that point I left because I don't think there was a productive uh, discussion. And, and most of the men left the movement at that point. Uh, because I think if we if we want to change things in society, we need to do it together. And uh, the blaming game is not going to help, I think. When we come back from our break, Franz Duval tells me about Donna, a female chimp in a group we were filming at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. It turns out Donna has important lessons for our species especially when we think about gender. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number, and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. 
For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Franz Duval. What about Donna? When you visited me at the field station, you probably saw her, but we didn't talk about her. But she was in one of the groups that you huh. that you filmed at the time. Uh, I've known her since she was about, I think, two or three. That was 17 years ago. Well, she is now, I think she's now 42 or something like that. How long will she live? Oh, a chimp female can, in captivity, live up to 50, I would say. Uh-huh. Some of them, like Mama, the chimpanzee that I described in my previous book, she was 59 when she died. Mm. So, so they can get quite old, you know. So what was Donna's story? So Donna was a baby when I met her. And, and already at that time, we didn't really know that she was different. But you could see that she, uh, she played with, with adult males. She sought out adult males to, to wrestle with, which young males very often do, but not young females. And so in that sense, already she was different from the rest. Then she, when she grew into adolescence, uh, years later, uh, she, she became a very robust female. She, she developed the big shoulders and the big hair and the big head of a male. And she started to act like a male. She would display with them if the males were displaying around uh, which we usually call bluff behavior with all the hairs on end and intimidating everybody, uh, she would run along with them. And, and she, she was part of that. And she associated more with males than with females, actually. So, so she became, from a, from a distance, if you didn't know it, she, you would swear she was a, was a male. Uh, she became a male-like character. And, and, of course, I cannot ask her about her identity, uh, her sexual identity, um, but... Um, Clearly, she acted more like a male than like a female. And and what I think is so interesting about her compared to our current discussion uh, about trans people and so on is that uh, that she was extremely well accepted. I've never noticed any problem with her. She was extremely well accepted by both males and females in the group. Hmm. I wonder, did she, uh, did she ever mate, get pregnant and have a baby? She had no uh, offspring at all, and she was not interested in sex. I- initially, we thought she might be a lesbian female, but she was not interested in sex, neither with males nor with females. Hmm. So overall, it seems to be that we're not condemned to inherited behaviors, but we can look for clues in our cousin's behavior for how we can change through our own socialization or self-socialization. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more flexibility than people assume. So, so people assume that, like some conservative politicians nowadays, they say such things as like there's men and women and that's all there is. And uh, I think things are not so, so simple for us and things are not so simple for our closest relatives. There are indeed males and females, um, but whether they are mutually attracted is not always the case. So, so for example, I consider uh, bonobos perfectly bisexual in the sense that I don't think it matters much for them uh, whether they have sex with a male or a female. So sexual orientation is not as clear-cut as people think. 
and maybe also sexual development. Uh, look at the case of Donna, and I've also also known males who are not exactly into the macho game. So they may be big males who are not interested in um, getting a high-ranking high position among the other males and stay out of confrontations. And so you have all that variability going on, what we call nowadays in society, we call it gender diversity. So you find all that gender diversity also in the other primates. Uh, and it's unfortunate that our current societies are intolerant of diversity. So, so we, we like to put people in pigeonholes, like you are male, you are female, you are homosexual, you're heterosexual. We like these pigeonholes, but not everything fits and, and not everybody fits. And, and we are intolerant of the ones who don't fit in these pigeonholes. I was very interested to see someplace that you said that archaeological evidence for war only goes back about 12,000 years. That's interesting because there are many yeah. kinds of animals that gang up in hunting, but the kind of organization that mm -hmm. warfare takes and the pre-planning and the instrumentation to accomplish it, mm -hmm. we only have evidence of that going back 12,000 years, and we've been here way longer than that. So what does that tell you? Well, I, I mentioned that because people often assume that, that our history is one of warfare and violence. And that we, we reached the dominance in, in the world because we eliminated everyone else, including the Neanderthals, including everybody else. And so we wiped out everybody else, and that's how we, we became the dominant force in this world. And that's still a story that in anthropology is extremely popular. And that's also the reason why anthropologists are not very fond of the bonobo, because the bonobo is not territorial and not violent, and, and so they don't know what to do with an animal like that, who is a close relative of us. And if you look at the literature on uh, warfare, we have evidence going back 12,000 years, approximately, of one group of people eliminating another group of people, or uh, massive fights between people. But from before that time, before agricultural revolution, when we, before our settlements that we created, um, we don't have evidence for that. And, and so it is highly speculative to say that we have always waged war. That's what people assume, but there is no real solid evidence for that. And there are some anthropologists who are into peace studies and so on, who argue that um, based on what we know about hunter-gatherers and so on, is that it's unlikely that we had a lot of warfare going on when we in earlier times. And so that's an important argument uh, because that makes that maybe the chimp behavior, because chimps are very territorial and they do kill each other between groups, uh, the males do, that maybe chimp behavior is, uh, is less in line with human evolution than bonobo behavior. So that's an important uh, topic to discuss, I feel. I think bonobos may be actually um, more similar to what we uh, imagine the common ancestor to be. And if you look at the, their anatomy, the long legs that they have, and especially when they walk upright, they can walk bipedally very easily. Um, if you see them, uh, they look a lot like Australopithecus. So they look like a lot like our ancestors. So what do you draw from that, that we have brought with the long legs a spear to carry on those long legs? <laughs> well, uh, bipedal walking is, of course, the first characteristic that set us apart. When, when 
our lineage um, deviated from the apes, um, it was not a big brain that set us apart. If you look at, at Lucy Australopithecus, um, uh, you know, her brain, her brain size was very similar to that of the apes. They were basically our earliest ancestors were bipedal apes with brains very similar to the apes. And, and they probably also interbred still with the apes. There's now some DNA evidence that they kept interbreeding with them to some degree. And so uh, it's, it's highly relevant that the bonobo has these long legs and, uh, and, and, and was similar in, let's say, body anatomy to these early ancestors. So you're saying that possibly along with developing longer legs like the bonobos mm-hmm. might have also inherited traits, social traits. Yes, yeah, so look at um, the human species. The human species is very sexy. Now, we often overlook that. We, 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 don't, we like a lot more to talk about violence and warfare than about sex and uh, sexual orientation and eroticism. Uh, and that's, of course, especially true in a Puritan culture like the American culture. It's a bit like Hollywood. Hollywood likes a lot more violence than sex. And as soon as there's sex in a movie, they have special ratings to keep it out of sight of people. So um, in the studies of, of human evolution, eroticism is a sort of downplayed. It, it, it's avoided. People don't talk much about it. And when when it became known that bonobos have sex in all possible combinations and all sorts of positions... Uh, some some people were clearly embarrassed by it and didn't want to talk about it and even questioned if it was sex. They would say, is it really sex? You know, and I would always say, well, if I did the things that the bonobos do in the street, I would be arrested when it was in a second. So it is, in my <laughs> opinion, it is sex. But they, they would question it. So, so eroticism is downplayed and is avoided and people are embarrassed by it. But it's very much part of the human species, I would say. It's a very important part of uh, our thinking and our culture. And um, the bonobo has a lot of connections there. And, uh, and in that sense, it's a very interesting species to compare ourselves with. And, and this also relates to the, to the gender discussion, because in the gender discussion, of course, female sexuality has been downplayed, uh, has been avoided by biologists. Biologists for the longest time had this sort of Victorian view of female sex is not really necessary. Enjoyment certainly is not necessary for the female. Uh, all they need to do is have sex and get pregnant, and that's all, all we care about. And, uh, and so in biology, we have downplayed female sexuality, uh, but the bonobo has the biggest clitoris of all the primates, bigger than humans. And, and so I think the bonobo is a very interesting comparison for all the, the, the sexual evolution of our species. And what about the female's role in choosing a sex partner? The, I think the Victorian idea, especially immortalized in the man getting down on one knee and proposing, <laughs> the idea is the man chooses and the woman accepts. Yeah. But that's not what happens in the field, right? No. No, I, I, you know, that's, that's a ritual in, in the American culture. The, the, the ring and the proposal that I've never fully understood because it's so asymmetrical. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so for me, that's not a very feminist uh, <laughs> proposal there. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea that, that sex is an interest of men and is an obligation of women, you know, that's sort of the Victorian view. 
uh, that doesn't hold up in biology anymore. We, we have completely changed our view on that. So, so if you look at a group of monkeys, as I did uh, for a long time, I was at the Wisconsin Primate Center and I worked with rhesus monkeys. If you look at a group of 100 rhesus monkeys, you are going to be sure that the alpha male has most of the offspring. He, he may have 90% of the offspring because you, all the copulations that you see are with the alpha male. If we test them, as we started doing in the 1980s and 90s, we started to test paternity, you find that, uh, well, the alpha male may have 50% or 40% of the offspring, but there's a lot going on with other males. There's a lot of younger males who have who, who father offspring. This, this must be happening at night or behind the bushes or behind the back of the alpha male. And we scientists, we don't know about it. So there's a lot of secret or sneaky stuff going on, initiated probably by the females. And so now we have a lot of evidence that female sexuality not just in the primates, but in many species, is much more proactive and adventurous than people had assumed. And so ideas about female sexuality are rapidly changing at the moment in biology. I'm wondering what you have to say about what the female gains from dalliances. Mm -hmm. is, the, is the female getting an advantage by stocking up with other genes? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the puzzle. Initially, people said, well... In order to get pregnant, a female only needs to mate with the best possible male. And how often does she need to mate? Maybe five times, six times, and then she, she's pregnant. Uh, and, and, and so you would assume that females would do very little mating. There's really no need for a lot of partners or a lot of sex. Now, uh, if you, there is a calculation on chimpanzee females that says that a chimpanzee female in her life she has five or six offspring. That's all she has. But she has about five to 6,000 copulations, which seems totally excessive. So she mates a lot more with a lot more males, because she mates with multiple males, than is necessary for pregnancy. So maybe, it, maybe it's not excessive if you ask her. No, you know, it is uh, partly driven by pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm sure pleasure is part of that. But if you look at it functionally from an evolutionary perspective, she may be hatching her bets in terms of males. So we know, for example, that chimpanzee males are infanticidal. They kill infants sometimes. Uh. And males generally kill infants that are not their own, not, not infants that they have sired. And How so, do they know that? How do they know it's not their own? Yeah, that's the thing. The, the males don't know about paternity, but they may be following a simple rule, which is don't kill the infants of females you had sex with recently. Mm. And if they follow that simple rule, they will avoid killing their own offspring. Now, by fem if females, take, take this from the female perspective, if females have sex with a lot of males a lot of times, they, they are excluding these males as, as dangerous, basically, because these males are going to be careful with them, are going to be friendly with them when they come with a baby. And so um, this is, these are ideas of Sarah Hardy, the, the anthropologist, and Sarah Hardy has proposed what she calls the, the many males hypothesis, which is that for a female, is it advantageous to have sex with a lot of males because it excludes 
these males as, as dangers uh, for infanticide. Well, this is so fascinating. I don't think we should end our discussion without quoting the last sentence of your book. Uh-huh. That it all comes down to mutual love and respect and appreciation of the fact that humans do not need to be the same to be equal. Yeah. We can tolerate all kinds of differences among all of us and among all our genders. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think difference between the genders is the issue. So, so if you look, look at the word gender inequality, which is really the issue that we are addressing, uh, people have focused too much, in my opinion, on gender as the issue. The inequality is the issue, and the injustice that is associated with it is the issue. People have made an issue of gender and said maybe we should get rid of genders and be gender neutral and uh, genders are not as important as we think and so on. Uh, I think we have focused on the wrong issue. We should focus on the inequality and try to fix that. Before we go, we always ask seven quick questions. Oh, gee, what is that? Well, they're seven. They're, they're seven, <laughs> they're, but they're, they're quick and they invite quick answers. Okay, okay. And they're generally related to communication. We asked you probably the last time we spoke seven quick questions, so maybe these will be um, mm. even different, which would be entertaining. Okay. Okay, first one, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I knew more about the feelings of animals. I, I study their emotions and their cognition, but what they feel internally, I cannot know, and, and I, I, I don't know. Yeah. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> ah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just cite the correct facts to them. That's <laughs> the only way I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Mm. People sometimes want to know um, sort of religious question, like, are there Jesus monkeys? What they mean is sort of saintly primates, and I'm not sure they exist. Also in human society, I'm not sure that we, <laughs> we, we have real saints, you know. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, I, I turn them off. Um, I probably turn away or, or look, look down. Or, I don't know. Very practical solutions uh, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation with the person? If there is time for it at the dinner table um, and, and this person has a, a job or interest that interests me, and I'll, I'll find that usually as as the place to start. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Confidence in myself, you mean? Well, you, you pick it. <laughs> well, I think uh, I was loved by my parents and I'm loved by my wife. I think uh, that, that is a, a big basis for confidence in, in a man. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Strangely enough, that's The Naked Ape of Desmond Morris. Huh. It's, not, it's a popular book, 
But, you know, I was a student at the university and I was bored to death with a lot of the classes in biology. And then one of the professors explained to us that we should never buy the naked ape. We should never read the naked ape. It was an unscientific, ridiculous um, uh, tract on, on biology. And as a result, I felt I needed to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, so, in, the index of forbidden books became your reading list. Yeah, I still, um, the people who are book burning at the moment, they don't know what they're doing. They're actually creating interest in books, I think. <laughs> That's great. Franz, this has been such a wonderful talk. I've enjoyed it so much. We have to get together more often than every 17 years. Well, actually, you've been on the show before, so we have. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we see each other every five years or so, so we, yeah, right. we need, need to keep doing that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Franz Duval is Professor of Primate Behavior in the Psychology Department at Emory University. And he's the Director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. His many books include Chimpanzee Politics, Our Inner Ape, and Mama's Last Hug, the book we talked about the last time he was a guest on Clear and Vivid. His new book is different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, we pick up on the topic that, as Franz said, has long been ignored by anthropologists, female sexuality. My guest is Lucy Cook, whose book, Bitch, on the Female of the Species, is rich in examples from species as varied as sage-grouse and meerkats, where females call the shots. I think that the subject of sex, one of the reasons why we're grappling with it culturally is that it is incredibly complex. And we can see evidence of that across the animal kingdom. And perhaps when you see it, across other species, it sort of start, starts to make sense a bit. I think learning about the animal kingdom is amazing because it can show us that everything is possible and then culturally how we choose to use that, those possibilities is, is, is up for grabs. Lucy Cook and why Charles Darwin has a lot to answer for in how anthropologists, and not to mention the rest of us, have viewed the female of the species. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.